Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor David Hunter, who is a rheumatology clinician researcher whose main research focus is osteoarthritis. In other words, he is a joint doctor. Professor Hunter is the Florence and Cope Chair of Rheumatology and Professor of Medicine at the University of Sydney and a staff specialist at the Royal North Shore Hospital and North Sydney Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Centre. David is the number one ranked expert in osteoarthritis on expertscape.com with an impressive 532 peer-reviewed publications. He has co-authored several books ranging from the medical textbooks on osteoarthritis we use in medical school to self-management books for patients suffering from osteoarthritis. He is also the section editor for the up-to-date osteoarthritis page and host of the Joint Action podcast. Welcome, Professor Hunter. Thanks so much for having me along, Liam. Like many great Australians, you were actually born in New Zealand in the town of Whangarei. However, you are not the only great Australian born in Whangarei because that is the same town as country rock superstar Keith Urban. Can you tell me about your journey that has led to you becoming the number one ranked expert in osteoarthritis and whether or not you considered a career in country music? No, and I won't, I won't break out into any tunes here because it'll really hurt your listeners' ears, but uh, I don't have any country music affiliations. I don't know Keith Urban personally, but I'll tell you how I got, how I got to where I am. I was, uh, Liam, as you mentioned, born in Whangarei. My father's a New Zealander. He was training to be a vet and had to go to Sydney Uni to, to get trained as a veterinarian because they didn't offer that in New Zealand at the time. But he was contracted by the New Zealand government to go back and work in New Zealand for a few years. And that's when I was born. Shortly after that, we only lived in New Zealand for about five years. We moved to an area south of Sydney called Jamboree near Kiama on the south coast of New South Wales. But I grew up on a dairy farm there. Um, and it was, you know, kind of idyllic existence uh, for someone growing up. Lots of outdoors, about 10 minutes from the beach, pretty close to the city. And at that point in time, got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And this will make sense in a second. She was one of my great role models. She was trained as a nurse, you know, was really a lovely, caring, empathic woman who was incredibly irreverent, uh, very disrespectful of incompetent authority figures. And... I think I learned a lot from her and we spent a lot of time together and we were incredibly close uh, growing up. And when I was in my mid-twenties, I was traveling overseas with um, my soon-to-be wife and I received a call from my mum to say that Chief, who that's our affectionate name for my grandmother, had just gone into hospital to have her knee replaced and I didn't realize she was having problems. She was a, a larger lady. Uh, she wasn't particularly active. She had a lot of comorbidities, so she fitted the, fitted the demographic very well. I didn't think too much more about it until about a week later, my mum called urgently to say that Chief had passed away from complications related to the surgery from an infection. And to my knowledge, she hadn't had any management of her disease prior to that. She'd been offered a joint replacement by a regional surgeon probably a low volume surgeon in a center that probably doesn't do a lot of joint replacements. So it was, it was right for something going wrong. I think since that point in time, I got obviously motivated about doing something more for osteoarthritis rather than necessarily just 
uh, shuttling people on a one-way road. Um, so I think that's what drove me to, in the first instance, probably go into medicine, but then ultimately probably also into uh, rheumatology. And in terms of why osteoarthritis, I think osteoarthritis in part subconsciously because of my grandmother, but I think probably more importantly, because there are so many research and evidence gaps that we could improve upon that makes the field really rich for someone who just likes asking questions and improving evidence and improving knowledge. That's uh, of all the stories of people, you know, as a medical student, I love asking people, you know, what, why did you want to become a doctor? It's the first question we get asked when we get interviewed for medicine. It makes perfect sense for you being an osteoarthritis expert, how you've got into that. And I would be pretty confident in saying that your grandmother would be very proud of you as you are the foremost expert. And I'm very honored to be able to talk to you about that today. And the first question I've got is about the naming um, the nomenclature of osteoarthritis. It's really, it's a strange word itself. It gets thrown around all the time. There's, there's, as patients and, and medical students, it's hard to understand, but basically it's osteoarthritis, which includes itis. As we know in a lot of things, that's an inflammatory process, but osteoarthritis is not considered an inflammatory arthritis. Further complicating things, sometimes I've seen osteoarthritis referred to as osteoarthrosis. So how do you teach students what osteoarthritis is? And more importantly, how do you explain it to patients? Yeah, it's a great question, Liam, and it's one that I'll try to answer. And when I get bogged down in torturous detail, you, you drag me out. I guess in the first instance, just to point out that osteoarthritis is a great descriptive term for scientists, but it's probably terrible for the patients out there who have the disease itself. Um, osteo means bone, arth means joint, itis means inflammation. And so the derivation of the term ultimately makes sense, but it really doesn't translate very well into something that patients will understand. So I guess in the first instance, why don't I just try to un unpack what I would say to a patient um, and how I would describe the disease. Essentially, I describe this as a disease of the joint where some of the joint tissue structures are damaged. They're not damaged beyond repair and most joint tissues have the capacity for repair. And the important element here is that it can cause pain, um, but it's not just the joint tissue structures that are causing pain. It's other factors within that person's body that helps them to process the pain. And in particular, uh, their experience of life, sometimes their psychosocial comorbidities, their depression, their anxiety, their stress, the socioeconomic circumstances can all influence their appreciation of pain and the expression of disability. So it's, it's a complex problem that has multiple risk factors that lead to it. And it's not just a disease that affects older adults, it affects uh, adults of really any age. And so while I'm doing that, why don't I unpack some of the problematic terms uh, that lead into that? So you, you mentioned uh, wear and tear, uh, bone on bone, uh, osteoarthrosis. Another term that's commonly used to describe this is degenerative. And so let's look at why each of those are either um, non-specific or inaccurate or unhelpful and why I would actively discourage their use. So 
Sam Bonsley and others at Opus in, in Melbourne have done some wonderful qualitative work around the use of terms like wear and tear and bone on bone, which are terms that are often used to describe um, either radiographic appearances, x-ray appearances, or alternatively to describe the disease itself. Wear and tear is inaccurate because every joint tissue structure does have some capacity for repair. In the context of osteoarthritis, that reparative potential has been overwhelmed by damaging type processes, oftentimes driven by the mechanics of the joint environment. So wear and tear is inaccurate. Bone on bone describes an x-ray appearance, but both of them lead to behaviors or changes in a person that might make them less inclined towards being active and fearful of being active and more inclined towards surgical repair where that can be a great option, but is definitely the last option that should be afforded uh, to people that have osteoarthritis. Osteoarthrosis was a term that was used historically because a lot of people believed that the itis, the inflammation in osteoarthritis didn't fit. But if you do, uh, if you take synovial fluid from the joint, for example, or if you do an MRI of a joint, almost universally, it will demonstrate features of inflammation in a person that has osteoarthritis. So itis is definitely an appropriate uh, part of the term. Um, and osteoarthrosis, again, is notoriously inaccurate. But I think in, in the context of this, it would be great for people just to understand this is a problem of joint pain that results in a person having difficulty with function. And there's lots of reasons why uh, that will vary between people in terms of uh, the expression of that pain itself. Hopefully that was helpful and not too uh, long-winded. Um, but I think ultimately a lot of the terms that get used lead to both inappropriate behaviors on the part of patients and oftentimes inappropriate management choices. So it's really important we get those terms right. Yeah, I would, you mentioned Sam Bunsley. I'd really encourage people to go and listen to the episode of your podcast, the Joint Action Podcast, where you talked about the misconceptions about knee osteoarthritis and how that can influence um, non-surgical care. But one of the other names that gets thrown around is this concept of healthy aging. What does that mean in the context of osteoarthritis? Yeah, so uh, more often than not, people who develop osteoarthritis um, are older adults. Um, and sometimes people take this as part and parcel of getting older and that they're much more accepting of the fact that there's nothing that they can do about it because they are getting older. And so as, as a consequence of, the, of that, they become a little bit more uh, nihilistic if you want to describe that. Healthy aging in an ideal world would essentially try to encourage people to be active irrespective of their age. Um, and oftentimes in the context of um, intermittent joint pain. Uh, more often than not, I think a lot of older adults who are feeling these sorts of joint symptoms uh, become a lot more passive in their approach. They say, I'm getting older. And rather than necessarily being proactive about its management, become a little bit more accepting than they should be. So I guess the main message I'd like people to walk away from from this is that osteoarthritis is not necessarily an essential part of getting older. Not everybody who gets to the age of 100 has osteoarthritis somewhere. It is a very common disease. And even for those people that do get osteoarthritis, I would generally see this as a, as a process whereby most people can maintain good level, levels of activity if they're given the right advice as, as to how best to manage this problem moving forward. 
One of the earlier episodes of my podcast, The Orthopod, was with two of my friends, Reese and Scott, and both of them have torn their anterior cruciate ligaments five times each. And they're quite worried about the prospect of developing osteoarthritis when they get a bit older because in addition to obesity and aging, repetitive joint trauma is considered a risk factor for osteoarthritis. Can you talk about how joint injury is thought to cause osteoarthritis? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important question, Liam, and I'm very happy to chat a little bit more about Reese and Scott's scenario as well. But I guess in the first instance, I just want to unpack the risk factors for osteoarthritis. The two biggest risk factors for the development of osteoarthritis of the knee relate to people being above a healthy weight and also to joint injury. And between those two, so a, a, obesity accounts for about 50% of a person's likelihood of developing osteoarthritis, what we call population attributable risk, and joint injury for about 20%. So about 20% of people who develop knee osteoarthritis do so as a consequence of an injury to the knee. Usually that injury occurs between the ages of 18 to 25. Oftentimes that injury involves not just the cruciate ligament, the main supporting structure within the knee preventing the translation um, anteriorly of the tibia, but often, more often than not, affects the osteochondral units, the bone and cartilage adjacent to that, as well as the meniscus. An isolated ACL, an isolated anterior cruciate ligament injury, the risk long-term of osteoarthritis as a consequence of that injury is only about 10%, um, but that's the minority of people who have a substantive injury to the knee. In contrast, most people do injure another structure. And in that context, particularly injury to the meniscus or the osteochondral unit, that bone and cartilage unit, the risk at about 10 to 15 years after the initial incident is that about 70% of them will develop osteoarthritis in that knee radiographically. Oftentimes the symptoms may not necessarily present at that time, but at least 70% uh, of them will develop osteoarthritis within 10 to 15 years if they've had a substantive injury to that knee. The important messages I, I'd like to give to people in the first instance is most of those are imminently preventable through neuromuscular tr training programs. So like things like the PEP program, the FIFA 11 program, we can prevent about 70% of those from happening. That happens at elite sports level in Australia, but unfortunately is not particularly well happening at the grassroots level. And that's something we'd really like to see change by virtue of the fact that if you can prevent about 70% of these injuries, you can probably prevent a lot of the osteoarthritis from happening in the first place. The osteoarthritis likely happens in the context of that acute injury as a consequence of a number of different factors that change. One is, the acute inflammation that occurs subsequent to that injury, the osteochondral injury that frequently occurs in consequence of the uh, translation of the knee, particularly to what we call the lateral femoral condyle. Um, and in addition, subsequent to the injury, even after uh, reconstruction of the cruciate ligament, there's a change in the contact area and stress mechanics within the knee such that more often than not, uh, the femoral condyle and tibial plateau are in much closer contact over much smaller contact areas. So the stress within the joint uh, oftentimes becomes too much for that joint to bear, so to speak. So they're the common scenarios as to why 
um, osteoarthritis likely ensues after that. I think it's important for people to know that ACL repair does not do anything to a person's long-term risk of the development of osteoarthritis. And in an ideal world, we would prevent most of these from happening because most of them are non-contact sports injuries. They occur when the knee uh, props underneath in a valgus inclination. Um, and in that, in that particular scenario, ideally we'd prevent most of these from happening. Now, a couple of words for Reese and Scott. Don't know how they developed this, but let's assume it was in a football or a netball or a skiing type scenario. In those particular people, my general advice to them would be after five ACL reconstructions, unless there's absolutely no way you can avoid it, try and find a different sport that's not likely to continue to damage your knee. Stay active, keep your body weight down, stay strong, but try to avoid recurrent injury because once you've had five ACL reconstructions, you're continuing to do damage to the knee, not only through the injury, but through the ACL reconstruction itself. Well, I'll make sure that they keep playing golf and cycling in that case. But um, I don't, I can't see either of them. Reese was a was a cricketer, um, a very very good cricketer. I'm sure he'd like me to add. And and Scott, one of my close closest mates, is a was a good footballer. And you know, unfortunately, both of them did have to come to that realization that uh, they can't keep playing sport anymore. But um, you mentioned earlier about uh, you know psychosocial impacts of osteoarthritis. I think where they're at in their life, um, it was difficult for them as, as in their 20s and early 30s having to go and say, I can't play this sport anymore, which is, a, I know myself as a, as a young athlete, that sort of defines that period of your life. Um, but they're now in, in really successful careers and their families are going very well. So I think perhaps would it be fair to say that as well as, as keeping fit and exercising, you know, making sure that, you know, generally you're quite happy and, and everything is stable in your life is also a big impact on not necessarily directly preventing osteoarthritis, but sort of helping contribute. Yeah, I think the the impact of stopping sport amongst particularly professional athletes is, is immense. And oftentimes these injury verdicts and guidance by people like me to to give the sport away because ultimately long-term you don't want to become too disabled at too early an age doesn't get taken the right way. So Liam, I would wholeheartedly agree with you as, as the father of a professional athlete to have a well-balanced life and have interests outside of your sport and ideally be pursuing things that will provide you a career outside oftentimes a sporting career, which doesn't necessarily last for very long. Uh, so yeah, I think it's incredibly important to have some balance and perspective there. So I have a, a unique surname. It's it's annoying. It doesn't fit on passport forms and other documents, but it's Fernando Canavan on top of two middle names as well. Thanks, mum and dad. Um, the Fernando comes from my dad. He was born in Sri Lanka. And in doing the preparation for this interview, I went through some of your most recent research publications. And one that caught my eye was, is being barefoot, wearing shoes and physical activity associated with knee osteoarthritis pain flares, data from a usually barefoot Sri Lankan cohort. Can you explain what are pain flares in patients suffering from osteoarthritis and why they happen? Yeah, firstly, a quick shout out to uh, my Sri Lankan PhD student. This is uh, from Anoshi, who's a 
studying her PhD at the University of Colombo. And this is a study we did together. Um, and uh, I know she was kind enough to spend a fair bit of time with us here in Sydney, but then went back to Colombo and pursued her studies there. Um, Liam, as you probably know, a large proportion of people, uh, even in the surrounding areas of Colombo, spend a fair bit of their time bare feet or wearing footwear that provides little, if any, supportive structure for their feet itself, um, which is not something we commonly see in urban westernized communities. So it provided an ideal opportunity for us to look at the impact of shoes versus bare feet on uh, predisposition to flares. And I'll digress for a second, but you know, I think the imposition of shoes upon feet uh, is likely to have caused large mechanical changes that are not necessarily advantageous for structural uh, deterioration in knees. And so I'm not sure that all of the shoes we wear are advantageous. And there's been a theory around for a while that suggests um, bare feet or bare feet type shoes are likely to be advantageous for mechanical loading in knees. And gait studies have demonstrated that. And this particular study demonstrated that being barefoot reduced your incidence of flares quite substantially. So what are flares? Flares are uh, oftentimes described as exacerbations of symptoms. So increases in pain, uh, reductions in function, alterations in sleep, mood, increases in analgesia. In our particular studies, we've described this as a uh, clinically important difference in pain. And what we've done in these studies is what's called a case crossover type analysis. So it's a within person approach where we look at a person in this particular instance when they're barefoot versus when they're wearing shoes and looked at the incidence of flares during each of those periods, demonstrating that being barefoot was quite protective of the development of flares. And this is, you know, a methodology in the case crossover studies that we've used uh, quite extensively, both in knee and hip osteoarthritis and have demonstrated uh, that for knees, that buckling, injury, changes in physical activity that are higher in impact, obviously barefoot, as we've just described, uh, are all important for uh, alterations in the frequency of flares. And we've done similar studies with another of my PhD students, Kai Fu, looking at hip osteoarthritis and some of the flares as it relates to uh, pain changes in, in hip osteoarthritis, where we've looked at other factors, including those, but also looked at factors such as alterations in weather, which a lot of patients believe changes their pain experience. For hips in particular, uh, exposure to sexual activity, which historically been uh, steered away from by virtue of, I think, a lot of people not wanting to talk about it. But hip and sexual function is a really important topic we probably need to talk a whole lot more about. Yeah, I, um, I might sneak in an extra question there because I know you, again, researching before this interview, you did an interview with um, Norman Swan talking about um, high heels and, uh, and sexual activity. And you mentioned at the end of that interview that you hadn't quite yet published or, or had the research ready to go with the sexual activity, but you did talk about the, um, the high heels and the impact that can have on, on hip OA. What, what, was, what was it exactly that you discussed? Uh, well, I won't go into what Norman said because he was trying to lead me down a path which was going to be incredibly unproductive and embarrassing to me. But um, it was essentially trying to allude to the fact that um, high heels in women might predispose to sexual activity and by virtue of that help a person's uh, symptoms through other paths. But the, the study that we looked at basically demonstrated that people who wear higher heels, so these are heels 
um, above four centimeters on average protect people with hip osteoarthritis from pain exacerbations. And mechanically, there are good reasons as to why that might be the case. Um, and so for hip osteoarthritis, high heels might actually be advantageous to a certain extent. We know for knee osteoarthritis, mechanically, they're quite deleterious. But for hip osteoarthritis, we found the opposite of that. So uh, that's why we thought it was important to, uh, to report on that. And Norman followed that up, as he does like to tease me, with regular questions about its relationship to sexual function as well. I might just deviate slightly for the medical students because when we learn about osteoarthritis, for example, taking a history from a patient, um, we often need to know how to differentiate that from rheumatoid arthritis. And from your point of view, how do they? How, how would you describe them as being different? Well, I guess in the first instance, their etiology is different. So for osteoarthritis, it typically comes about by virtue, more often than not, of uh, mechanical changes within the knee, uh, leading to structural deterioration and consequent inflammation that occurs as part of that structural, structural damage. In contrast, rheumatoid arthritis is primarily an inflammation-driven disease. So it comes about by virtue of the fact that a person has developed an antibody that is targeted towards uh, the synovial joint itself, causing damage primarily through inflammatory processes. And by virtue of that, when we think about pain that emanates from that, we describe the pain that comes from a person that has an inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis type picture as inflammatory type pain, meaning more often than not, it has different diurnal characteristics. It's oftentimes worse during the night or early morning associated with a prolonged duration of early morning stiffness, typically longer than 30 minutes in duration, as distinct from a mechanical type pain that comes from osteoarthritis, where more often than not, particularly during the earlier part of the disease, the pain is only present when a person's doing an activity typically not present at rest until very late stages of disease and more often than not, not associated with stiffness other than potentially short duration of stiffness, what we call gelling, which might be a minute or two in duration. So another great piece of research that you've been involved in was in 2013. You were able to show that with just a 10% reduction in body weight through a combination of diet and exercise, this was associated with a 50% reduction in pain in overweight patients with knee osteoarthritis after 18 months. It makes sense how reducing weight can alleviate the pain on an osteoarthritic knee, but can you explain how exercising can actually help get rid of the pain of osteoarthritis rather than making it worse? Yeah, um, it's a really good and important question, and I'm not going to be able to answer it as clearly as I would like, Liam, but I will give it a go. But firstly, a quick shout out to Steve Messier, who was the lead author on that paper that was published back in uh, JAMA in 2013, which I think was probably one of the pivotal weight loss studies in the last decade in osteoarthritis, which really highlights the importance of weight loss uh, to improvement in symptoms in osteoarthritis. And the weight change not only helps the symptoms by virtue of reduction in load, but also reduces the inflammation that comes from the fat uh, that likely circulates and increases a person's symptoms. But your question is more around exercise and how can exercise help? Well, firstly, it can help by virtue of uh, reducing uh, nociceptive influences that likely come uh, from the joint by stabilizing the joint itself. 
um, by improving health and particularly mental health. Um, and by virtue of that, uh, potentially reducing some of the psychosocial influences on pain and disability experience. But a lot of the reasons, the theoretical reasons that underpin why muscle strengthening, for example, might help in osteoarthritis have not been particularly well explored or examined in the lab or in, in uh, particular research studies. So there's lots and lots of room for improvement uh, for what is very fundamental question, a very basic question as to why one of our fundamental treatments helps people that has osteoarthritis. Would it be fair for me to speculate and say that people exercising with osteoarthritis gives them confidence that they can move their joints? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the important downsides for a person that has osteoarthritis is what we call um, kinesophobia or a fear avoidance or a, basically a fear that any activity uh, will hurt them. Um, with, with appropriate guidance, everybody with osteoarthritis should be able to do some form of exercise and some form of activity. And Liam, as you said, give them greater confidence that their joint can undertake the loads that they were fearful that they otherwise couldn't have done. So I think it's, it's a really important message to give to people uh, not to be fearful of those types of activities and more often than not, try to be proactive in getting engaged in whether that be strengthening or increased physical activity. So as a clinician researcher, your focus is on bench to bedside research, where you work on bringing research findings from the lab into the clinic to directly help patients. However, not many patients would be happy to hear that there's an estimated 17-year gap between when someone like yourself as a health scientist learns something to when practitioners change their patient care as a result. So why is there a 17-year gap and what can I do as a medical student to maybe help speed up this process? It's a great question, Liam, and when I um, don't necessarily give you the answer that you're after, keep pressing um, and obviously stay motivated to change that moving forward. I think historically a lot of researchers like myself used to publish their findings and think that was the end of the activity. So we'd do a trial and then we'd publish it and think that was all we needed to do. But nowadays, I think most researchers would be much more aware of the importance of translation and dissemination. Uh, and in that guise, making sure that if you've done a trial that demonstrates some meaningful change for an intervention, you try to get that incorporated in guidelines, uh, in various policies, uh, in reimbursable interventions uh, that ultimately hopefully will make a difference to patient care. So it's not just about publishing the trial, um, but then also for people in, in positions like me, but ultimately for you as well, Liam, getting involved in media to help disseminate messages that hopefully will influence the community at large. So whether that be through a media like podcasts, through television shows, through radio shows, through social media, um, there's great ways to reach out to the community of people that have osteoarthritis to hopefully influence them and their care more directly. Um, in addition to that, you know, spend more time educating health professionals. So we, you know, we spend, I spend a lot of my time educating students, but also educating other health professionals, and in particular, spending time with people in the primary care context, which is really where the coalface of this disease is, trying to get them more engaged uh, in, 
endeared towards what we see as the, the core treatments and steering away from uh, lower value care. But I think for someone at your stage of your career, Liam, I think the most important thing to try to do is to stay abreast of the current evidence and to try to develop the skill set that you can continue to do that throughout your clinical career, because oftentimes that can decay over time. And um, I think in addition, be mindful of the importance of continued dissemination. So yeah, it'll probably be really exciting, Liam, when you publish that trial in that paper, but don't stop there. Get the message out. Make sure that it gets heard. Yeah, I... Um... I don't think I need to keep pressing. I think you've answered it very well. But I, you know, for one one thing, I've I'm certainly glad I've discovered as I learn things, and I feel guilty because I do like the history of medicine. And for the people that have poured all their effort and time into some of the textbooks, the classical textbooks that that I use in medicine, that you probably used yourself. I mean, um, I remember my one of my friends, his dad's a GP, and I told him I was interested in medicine as a teenager. He gave me Murtagh's General Practice. And I saw in my um, textbook list that that's now a book that I'm supposed to go and um, get. But as I mentioned in the intro, you're the author of the osteoarthritis page on Up to Date, which has the most, as its name suggests, up to date information. So I think those sorts of tools, another one is the BMJ Best Practice app. They're really useful for my learning because there it is, there's the most up to date information, and it links to the research papers that. Um, form that information as well. Do you, do you think are those programs used as much as they should be without the fact that you're obviously biased? <laughs> well, I'm biased in more than one direction though, Liam. And so I think, you know, it's important to understand that I've contributed chapters to some of the seminal textbooks that you and other students have likely used around osteoarthritis. So it's not to say I haven't contributed to the standard old textbooks. The problem with textbooks is that, let's say, for example, I'm working on a textbook for uh, called Cecil textbook of medicine at the moment, an osteoarthritis chapter that's coming out in their next edition. By the time I finish writing it, it will already be out of date. And by the time it gets published, it'll be another year from then. And that edition will continue to be used for another five years after that. So, you know, the, the availability of technology these days, particularly, you know, the modalities that you've just spoken about in particular, I'd like to give a good plug to UpToDate, um, which is just, I think, a wonderful resource. For those of you who are unaware of it, it gets used by about uh, 2 million clinicians internationally. The osteoarthritis modules last year were downloaded over a million times. So it's, it's you know, a wonderful resource. We stay abreast of the current information. We update that regularly. Um, and so it's not a static resource like a textbook would be. And so there's lots of resources out there that are like that that I think will allow clinicians to stay abreast of the current evidence, which is always continually moving. I was actually doing a little bit of cramming for the interview before just going on the osteoarthritis page. And I don't know how relevant this is, but it, there was a little update that popped up about turmeric being beneficial for possibly pain flares. I'm not too sure. Just could you share some light on how does something, when it gets discovered or, or you know is it something that you have to come across and then you contact up to date or how, how does that work and if possible can you just tell me what's so good about turmeric because my dad for example loves using it in curries <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's not a bulletproof process so that there's about there's an overarching musculoskeletal editor there's myself who works on the osteoarthritis content 
And then there's, I think at last count, there was about 15 modules that I'm responsible for that all have an osteoarthritis flavor. And each of those has about two authors responsible for the content within each of their modules. So there's about 30 odd people that are curating content, getting to that on a regular basis and updating material and up to date. And I would be updating something uh, close to every second week across those modules. So it's, it's happening on a regular basis. It's not foolproof. Um, but we do revise every module completely from front to back at least every three to four years. So they're all getting updated more regularly than a, than a textbook with. Curcumin, or uh, you know, one of the ingredients of turmeric, um, is an anti-inflammatory. Uh, it has been shown for lots of, lots of years to have that potential property. In the context of osteoarthritis, um, there's a great study recently done by uh, Benny Anthony at Menzies in the University of Tasmania that demonstrated that it does have many benef beneficial, meaningful impacts on pain and function in people that have osteoarthritis. Do I swear by this for every person who's out there that has osteoarthritis? No, not necessarily. And I think we need, we need more evidence. We know categorically for those people who are listening that by far and away the most common supplement that's used by most people that, has, that have osteoarthritis glucosamine is no better than a sugar pill in, in well done trials. But there are a number of other supplements, uh, curcumin amongst them, uh, boswellia, pycnogenol, and, and a couple of others that appear to have beneficial modest effects, um, but the trials at this point in time are not of great quality. So you're not gonna see a lot of guidelines coming out and advocating for them. We've got a little bit of time left, so I might just pursue that while we're on it. Things like, well, you know, non-pharmacological interventions is a whole nother podcast, you know, biologics. I'd really like to ask a little bit more about that. But when I, you know, I was telling my girlfriend before I'm interviewing David Hunter and her grandma over in, in Italy, she's turning a hundred in, in a, her great grandmother rather is turning a hundred in November and she has hyaluronic acid injections. And I think you might've done a podcast recently about steroid injections that was possibly released yesterday. Could you just briefly talk about some of those sort of treatments for osteoarthritis and the evidence around them? Sure. Well, I would like to believe that your girlfriend's grandmother probably is doing so well because she's sticking to a Mediterranean diet and is likely living a very healthy life, both socially and physically. So I would have thought that's probably likely the reason she's lived so long and it's probably got nothing to do with any of the hyaluronic acid injections she's been receiving. So hyaluronic acid is a very normal constituent of synovial fluid. It's thought to be assistant in lubricating the joint, so allowing the joint to move a little bit more freely. And on the basis of that, many, many years ago, people started injecting that into people's knees, calling it a lubricant and thinking that that was going to provide beneficial, meaningful impacts on, on symptoms. Um, most of the hyaluronic acid injections, irrespective of the molecular weight of the hyaluronic acid, is well out of the joint within 24 hours. It really has no long, meaningful, long-lasting effects within the joint itself. It doesn't provide any long-term mechanical change to the joint. And well-done trials would suggest that hyaluronic acid injections are no better than salt water injections at six months in terms of, or three or six months in terms of uh, in terms of symptoms. So most guidelines these days are not advocating for the use of hyaluronic acid injections in part because of their substantial cost, about $500 a shot, and more often than not, it's a course of two to three injections. And in addition, a large proportion of them 
tend to have a, a hypersensitivity reaction. So they actually get a bigger fusion in about five to 10% of people. So on the back of that, most guidelines are not advocating for hyaluronic acid, acid injections. Despite that, there are a number of countries around the world, Italy, Japan included, where this is a massive market, well in the billions of dollars per year, giving hyaluronic acid injections. And they'd be much better off going out and drinking their Chianti or taking a walk in the vineyard and picking some olives. Okay, I'll make sure she sticks to polenta then. <laughs> um, okay, lastly, so you host a podcast yourself. We've mentioned it a few times. It's the Joint Action Podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And for anyone who wants to go really deep into osteoarthritis, I strongly suggest having a look at it. And imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Well, Liam, I really appreciate the plug and thank you for the continued support. And it's a question that I love asking other people, but I'm not necessarily uh, enjoy, enjoy answering it. But if I, if I were to have a billboard, um, you've probably seen this image, but it's an image of essentially footsteps on a beach moving off into the distance. And the, uh, the tagline at the bottom of that is, let's take the first step together. So that's what I would like to see on a billboard is just an image of footsteps on a beach and the tagline being, let's take the first step together. And so let me unpack what I mean by that. Oftentimes, um, as you mentioned before, fear of activity is a huge problem. Um, and so more often than not, taking that first step is a big challenge for many people, but being active is so incredibly important. And there's lots of different resources, myself out there, uh, who would love to help people get more active and get more involved in the management of their disease. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Hunter. It was a fantastic learning experience just for me personally, and hopefully even my dad might get something out of it if he has a listen to it. So go and get exercising, Dad, and for any of the people listening as well. So thanks again. Absolute pleasure, Liam, anytime. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.